Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second session of our Net Zero conference. So uh, a lot of you will have hopefully have been listening to Chris Skidmore. Uh, Chris Skidmore said, commitments are just words on a page. What really matters is delivery, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in this second panel. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government. Uh, delighted to see you all here. Now, I've got an absolutely excellent panel to join me to talk about delivery. We've got David Joff, Director of Analysis at the Climate Change Committee, Guy Newey, Chief Exe Executive of the Energy Systems Catapult, Tom Sass, for today, Associate Director of the Institute for Government, who's led much of our net zero work, from tomorrow, Public Policy Editor at The Economist, um, a big loss to us, a big gain for them, and last but absolutely by no means least, Charlotte Warburton, who's the Public Sus Sustainability and Climate Change Lead at Deloitte. So remember that as before in session one, we'll be tweeting from at IFG events, hashtag IFG net zero, do tweet along. If you're watching online, or even if you're in the room, uh, please submit questions on Slido. Uh, and if you see a question that's exactly the question you would have asked or a slightly inferior version of it, please do <laughs> upvote it rather than put your own slightly better drafted version. Um, we have a bonus 10 minutes in this session compared to our normal hour panels, so we're going to have loads of time to get to questions. I know last session we were a bit constrained, but anyway, there's going to be loads of time for everybody to be involved. And if you're watching in the overflow room, do put your head around the door and make clear that you want to ask a question when we get to that. But what we're going to do first is just kick off with a bit of panel chat. Uh, so, <laughs> David, Climate Change Committee's report was mentioned by Hannah to Chris Skidmore as you know, not giving an overall rosy picture, saying, yes, a bit more confident on fourth carbon budget, NDC for 2030, 2035, sixth carbon budget, mm, not really there yet. So, she, can you just give us a sort of quick resume of where you... Now we're worried, because the really intriguing thing about your report was that more detail had made you more worried. You know, we assumed that the detail would reassure rather than unnerve, but why did you come to that conclusion? Thanks very much, Joe. Um, so, I mean, you've given an overview. You said we're more confident on, on the near-term target and, and, and less on, on the longer term. On the nearer term, we see changes after the pandemic in how society operates actually being helpful in terms of you know, more working from home and less, therefore less transport demand and those sorts of things. The government has set out then ambitions and policies in a whole range of areas that are required for, uh, to meet the sixth carbon budget, to meet the, the 2030 target. But we just don't have confidence that all of that will be delivered in the way it needs to be and on time. So that's why we've got less confidence within that I think it's, it, it's fair to say, you know, there are headwinds at the moment that are making things more difficult. So, for example, in the electricity sector, that's actually looking more difficult for reasons that are, to some extent, out, outside the government's control. So there are things going on. It's not just, oh, we've seen, less uh, we've seen more transparency, we've realised it's worse than we thought, uh, and so on. There are also headwinds. But the, the greater transparency was also quite revealing that, you know, in trying to put numbers on particular policies, uh, for the emissions reductions that we get by 2030, the government actually refused to put numbers on some things, and that suggested that there might be a bit less commitment in the areas such as transport demand. We've, we've seen good progress because of 
the pandemic and responses to that rather than through government policy, where we don't see signs that the government is really committed to cementing those gains and to, to continuing them. So the lack of numbers on that gave us less confidence that that was going to uh, pan out as, as we needed it. I think more generally, there is a pattern that the government in many areas is doing the right things, but not necessarily with sufficient urgency. So we see lots of consultations, responses to consultations, and eventually policy coming through, but there are continual delays and, and so on. We're seeing hard choices being ducked, and particularly in home heating. I'm sure we'll come on to, to, to talk about that later on. There are numerous blind spots. So fossil fuel production uh, is one, the demand side, and, and actually how people engage with net zero and how, how they make choices. Um, there's also risks of, of culture wars and actually going backwards on some of the commitments that we've already seen. There's a lack of a vision, I would say, from government and a lack of public engagement for actually to show people how they can play their part in net zero and how their low carbon choices can, can contribute. And so overall, our assessment was actually things are going backwards a little bit. And in terms of the UK's international leadership, where we have been very strong over the last decade, you know, others are now coming more to the fore and we're slipping back into the pack. That's very, very interesting. So we'll bank that and we're going to come back to some of those specific areas, I'm sure, during the rest of the session. Uh, let me move quickly on to Charlotte. Um, Charlotte, one of the sort of key interesting features about the UK transition is it's going to require a lot of action in the private sector. I think Chris Skidmore really interestingly singled out some of the long-termism mm -hmm. that's visible in US and the Inflation Reduction Act in Germany. We'll come that. But you know, what, does, what do you think the private sector is looking for from, government, from this government and then maybe from subsequent governments after an election, you know, which has to take place by January 2025 at the latest? My short answer, and I'm going to go on, so I won't, I won't mm. just start with one sentence. For me, it's all about actually turn the strategy and policy into action at pace and quickly. You know, we've got lots of policy which is useful. People could always argue for more. Um, but actually, how do we make that pragmatic and get going with it? I think when we talk to clients across uh, sector, the, the, you know, the opening conversation is it's a trillion pound global market opportunity for the UK between now and 2030. We could have half a million new jobs created. It's significant. We need to be starting from that lens. And actually, what are the levers we pull to drive delivery to get that. Uh, when we talk to clients, so we have a C-suite sustainability report, where we talk to all the decision makers and the message is consistent. This is one of their top pressing issues. Similarly, when you speak to mm. citizens on what they want from the mm. government and their priorities, this comes third to cost of living crisis and NHS waiting list. So it's, the agenda is there for mm. everybody, but it's how we unlock it. Um, and when we get to that delivery point, it's how do you put this at the heart of business critical issues and not the bolt on the side? So what Chris talks about, I think does put it at the part, but how do we help people understand how they can solve their other issues in a sustainable way? So how can you get your operational costs down by reducing your energy footprint and making your energy cheaper? Actually, you do it through net zero and sustainability, but how do you get there? So when we talk about it with clients and what we do, they're less worried about the policy uncertainty, although they recognise mm. it, and they would like greater join-up and cohesion across government. So how do we stop the silos mm. and get that consistency? Um, but it's more around the delivery perspective. 
and taking a whole system holistic view. Mm. So because we have the silos, we look at it in parts, mm. but how do you take an end-to-end -end industry view and convene all the right players to come together and pull together? Um, and I think we won't speed up unless we do that. You know, we've heard from the Climate Change Committee, they've lost confidence, we're not going mm. fast enough. I don't believe we'll go faster individually. We have to get public, private, and the financiers to come together. Um, ways we talk about doing it, so it's the strategy to action mm. point, mm. at pace, agile, get comfortable with uncomfort, potentially changing roles and joining up in different ways that we haven't before. You know, we've heard of the Office of Net Zero, mm. If done right, great opportunity to be the convener of change across the country, not to be a, a box-ticking function for me. Mm. Um, the, the, the third bit I'd talk about is how we leverage technology and energy, right? There's lots of technology out there. What mm. uh, often when we talk to clients about, it's not necessarily always about creating more. Yes, there does need to be some technology mm. shifts, but it's actually how do we ask the right questions and use what we've got um, and then the third point for me would be the say-do gap. So clients and citizens all say this is a priority. But when they get to go and do, it falls off the list because there's other competing headwinds, cost of living crisis, mm. economic challenges. And it comes back to my point on how do we demonstrate collectively how you solve your business critical issues in a sustainable way. And it's not just at an industry level. Mm. I think there is this national engagement mm. campaign that we need. And we need to be able to give citizens the right information at the right time so they understand the impact of their choices and how they could affect it. All right. We've actually got quite a lot of questions coming in on engagement, which um, uh, pre-warn Tom at least on and uh, whatever that we might get to that. But Tom, um, Chris Kidmore wrote his report back in January, I think it was published, recommended this Office for Net Zero Delivery. The government sort of said, actually, we've created DESNES, Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. I know that Grant Shapps doesn't like being called DESNES, but frankly, too late. Uh, it's out of the box. Uh, we had DESNES created, yeah, and the government says that's the answer. That's our answer. We don't need this extra bit of machinery. Mm. We'd written reports before saying that actually the Department of Energy and Climate Change, basically DESNES Mark One, didn't really manage to have clout across government. Do we actually now see the coordination needed, or do we still need a bit of extra machinery? Yeah, so I, I think the decision to revert to sort of deck model was broadly sensible, but I think we're still missing quite a lot of that coordination, and I think that's particularly the case when you don't have a prime minister sort of really leading out on front on this. Um, so, I mean, we spoke to people who were involved in Bayes when they were leading on net zero, and some of those officials were saying it might have been a tenth at most of the Secretary of State's time in Bayes. It had become quite an unwieldy department as having to respond to all manner of different kind of businesses and crises and so on. So I think the decision to move back to a more focused energy mm. department is sensible. Um, and if you look at DEC's successes, actually it had a big string of successes in transforming the energy mm. sector. That's where we decarbonized quickest, um, and particularly on electricity market reform, Hannah mentioned mm the sort of offshore wind success story. So it was very good at actually capturing that expertise, having some officials who stuck around for a long time uh, and driving change in the energy sector. Where DEC struggled and where I think Desnes is, is going to struggle is on the cross-government uh, coordination and influence piece. So if you, if you look from 2010, you saw less progress in housing, less progress in, in transport. And if you look at the CCC's 
latest report, again, we mm. see, I don't think mm. we, we're quite at that point of being able to say that sector by sector we've got a clear plan. Um, I think the, the point about an office for net mm. zero delivery is interesting because it's, actually, Chris Gidmore mm. was kind enough to reference our, our work mm. in his piece, and it's quite similar to the mm. sort of model we were proposing. And on the question that was asked mm. earlier about the kind of climate change committee role, mm. I think this is quite different. I think mm. this is about internally mm. what mechanisms do you have in government for holding different departments' mm. feet to the fire. And we've got this thing in mm. our kind of the Climate Change Act mm. legislation that the, the legal mm. responsibility is on the lead department, mm. but that means that your DEFRA or your transport um, doesn't really kind of feel the heat. Um, so I think that's why you need an office for net zero delivery. Mm. I, I think, you know, Desnes at the moment thinks it can do it itself. I think it mm. sort of has to, to say that and, and believe that, mm. but I think we'd still see a bit of a gap there. Okay, Desnes people in the room, uh, be aware this is being broadcast <laughs> if you want to come in with views, but you can always post anonymous questions on Slido, she said, just uh, come in. Actually, Guy, um, I remember chairing something pre-pandemic, and my life is now pre-pandemic or post-pandemic, where we said, should we recreate deck? And I think you were a bit of a fan of the status quo. Now the change has happened. <laughs> Do you actually think that this is a good change or uh, was actually, um, you know, this sort of energy, climate change agenda doing better inside the big business department? I do, I've, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just having a really big flashback to that <laughs> moment. And I was sat over there saying... Uh, and uh, Ed Davey was on the panel, and we had a slightly testy uh, exchange back and forth, and he was, absolutely, we need to recreate mm. deck and things like that. And I, I, I guess my, my, my point is that I'm probably a bit more sceptical about how you arrange mm. the deck chairs. The key challenges are how are you going to do delivery, mm. as Charlotte says, mm. how are you going to coordinate those mm. are those challenges, and do you have political will to mm. do it? And those kind of magic ingredients, it doesn't really matter what the name mm. uh, is on the side of the department or where, mm. they're, where they're located, it's how all that stuff uh, fits mm. together. So, yeah, I take the point on mm. Secretary of State's time, and that's a mm. big part of our asset. It was certainly a challenge when I was in uh, Bayes, but it's not, the, it's not the biggest challenge going forward. Okay, now I'm going to come on to where I want to do. So we've sort of got a bit of an overview, you know, not quite coordinated, not quite coming together, yep. bit of a lack of oomph, maybe a bit of a lack of vision and certainly a lack of detail. Now, uh, you're at the energy systems catapult. Um, we obviously have this massive change in how we deliver energy that decarbonisation requires a massive amount more of decarbonised energy, yet we keep on sort of hitting buffers about interconnectors, planning, all of these things. So how, on, how do you actually see the sort of transition of getting from our rather creaky grid system now into the future much expanded yeah. electric that's going to enable the electric vehicle transition, the home heating transition, because without that, then basically nothing else is going to work, is it? Yes. So, I mean, the, big, the biggest barrier to net zero, we can talk about planning and other, other things, but the biggest barrier to net zero is it's bloody hard, right? It's a really difficult thing to do. The best metaphor that I've come across is, it, is you're trying to rebuild a, an aeroplane while it's still flying. Right? I think that's kind of how difficult this, uh, this challenge that is. That sounds like something you shouldn't for. even go near trying, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> we all it's, go home? it's not impossible, but you have to be very, very careful. And actually, you know, this, this is not just about the kind of big kind of model-led stuff. We're going to need a new 
uh, clean hydrogen system on the scale of the current electricity mm. system, uh, and which is basically zero at the moment. We're going to probably need an electricity system which is 70% uh, bigger than the one we have uh, now and has a lot more renewables on the system. We're going to need heat networks to increase by a order of magnitude. That's not actually the stuff I worry about. What I worry about is the kind of in the supply chain stuff. Can you get enough cables, enough switch gear, enough substations, enough EV chargers, you know, all the electrical components, pieces of work we've done with the industry looking at that using, using the modeling at the catapult is kind of once you get into that detail, you know, you're looking at 50% increase in the kind of, in the kind of stuff you're going to need on this system. Where's that going to come from in international uh, supply chains? And it all has to work together. People are not going to be relaxed about sitting in the dark for a couple of hours because of net zero. We've got a very reliable grid starting to creak, mm. if we're completely honest. Uh, um, and, if we, and, and people will just not put up with that. Then they will just go, well, if this is associated with net zero, no thanks, that's not, uh, that's not for me. So it has to work uh, on a system base that has to work for uh, consumers. Mm. The good news on that, after all that, all that gloom and how difficult it is, is you've got innovators across the country, large and small, the companies that, that we work with at the Catapult, who are desperate. They are gagging to solve this problem, uh, harnessing the opportunity of digital technology, which energy is just mm. starting to uh, move forward on, thinking about consumers in a more mm. sophisticated way mm. that the energy system, mm. if we're being completely frank, has not been great. Mm thinking about, you know, we all know how difficult it is to get your bill accurate, uh, how you're going to get there to, to a stage where you're moving forward. But, but it, in order for that to happen, you've got to get your incentives right, you've got to get your planning right, you've got to have all of these elements which are still missing at the moment. So Guy, there were a huge number of passives in that of all these things we've got to get right or yeah. have got to be got right. Who does what in this system to make sure it all comes together in this wonderfully seamless, hopefully lowest cost way, uh, which the Climate Change Committee tells us is what delivers the sort of net benefits to the economy. Uh, you know, who's coordinating this sort of massive energy and harnessing it into something that becomes a plan that comes with the guarantees that doesn't enable some of the people Chris Skidmore was worried about yeah. to be saying actually net zero means the light's going out, net zero means you can't drive your car anymore, net zero actually is inflicting uh, sort of iron, you know, iron Age, Stone Age lifestyle on things. So who should well, the be thing, the thing that is absolutely essential, uh, and you know, I work with a lot mm. of engineers now, mm. and as a, as a policy background person, I learn a huge amount for that. Is is being really clear on roles and responsibilities between Ofgem, between mm. the future's new future system operator, between the government and between the industry, and that means making choices about how much is going to be delivered in the market, mm. how much is going to be planned, how much is going to be national, mm. how much are going to be local. Those are strategic choices mm. for the government. Then you've got to think about how those are implemented. And, mm. and I still think we're not anywhere near clear enough exactly whose role it is. And there's a bit of government saying, we'll keep our arms mm. around this as much mm. uh, as possible. But it's a real struggle to have the capability and the, and the kind of bandwidth to try and coordinate all of that. So clear roles and responsibilities mm. and how they feed through is the kind of basics of what is a coordination challenge. So David, you've said that you know, your confidence was undermined by the new transparency. This is obviously one of the biggest areas where you need a sort of plan. So what do you see as the big sort of gap between the need and the plans that we have now? Do you agree with Guy? Or? Yes. I think I, I agree with Guy on almost everything he said. I think the designing the new system is a big challenge, and you know, 
as a, a fundamentally an analyst, you can build these things, you can build the models that say, mm. we can do this, and if the models are good enough, mm. they might even be broadly right. But the real world challenge is, is, is huge, just the supply chains, which you know, the models don't represent, generally speaking, et cetera, is a big thing. The thing we need to do, A, is to decide what it looks like, and B, give enough confidence to the private sector mm. that they can then invest behind that so that we can start building up these supply chains. I mean, Guy talked about the, the, the electricity system, but if we, if we take the example of buildings decarbonisation, you know, there's a really important role for heat pumps. Mm. And you know, we've just been through a gas price crisis, and yet we only had 70,000 heat pumps installed last year. Why? Because we don't have a supply chain that could have delivered two, three, four times that, for which the demand was probably mm. there, but we just didn't have the supply chain. So. The other thing we need is a long-term view of where we want to get to so that people can actually invest in the skills and the capabilities to be able to deliver this. At the moment, we're kind of at the starting gates and buildings decarbonisation, and we don't have the clarity that allows those things to start building. So we're losing, we, the government said it will make decisions in 2026 mm. on buildings decarbonisation, but what are we meant to do for the three years Which in the meantime? Which has got the 600,000 target for... Sure, but that, in the decade. that's a nine-fold increase on the level of installations that we saw last year in the space of five years. And, you know, okay, affordability is very challenging at the moment. Who's got, you know, even after the subsidy, who's got another 5,000 or whatever to, to, to invest in a heat pump? But on the other hand, gas prices are very high. So this was a really good time to get people off gas boilers and onto heat pumps, and we didn't do it. A ninefold increase in five years looks extremely challenging, and I'm using the, the mm. CCC diplomatically, mm -hmm. you know, okay. toned down language. It's hard to see how we get a ninefold increase, frankly. And worth saying, you know, that 600,000 target for 2028, the CCC's number is 900,000. So, you know, that's whatever it is 13, 14 times increase. That just looks very, very, very challenging. Charlotte, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, you know, I think this is the decade in which we've all learnt to understand, maybe not understand, but understand that supply chains are really important. Mm -hmm. So what's sort of needed in terms of, you know, messages coming back that would allow that supply chain for something like heat pumps yep. to emerge at sufficient scale? And I was listening to Jensen thinking, mm. for, the, for me, the key point is the earlier engagement and the clarity up front. So we've got a goal now, but I don't think we've necessarily always engaged people early enough. And I think it sometimes can be a transactional engagement rather than to my earlier point of looking at it as a industry and how do we come together and play the roles mm. in that and get supply chain involvement earlier because they may have innovations, different mm. ways of doing it to help influence what we're gonna do rather than respond to the ask from government to do it. Um, I think linking to that, and it was a point made mm. around, we can't forget workforce and skills. Mm. So by not mm. being quick enough off the mark up front, we are going to have a skill shortage in some of these key new technologies. How do we get ahead of that? And I, 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 it sounds basic, but I constantly anchor back to collaboration, convening, and coming together up front earlier, taking what we've got and turning it into action. So does that mean that you think we need, so Tom's talked a bit about the need for an office of net zero delivery, but does that mean you actually want to create some new sort of 
net zero forum or something like that with government and private sector and maybe Ooh. citizens? No. no. So, I mean, my so what do we it, want? It okay. sounds like the lots of yowls of no, but what do we need to do this sort of engagement then? Mm. I think we've got lots of forums that we could leverage. I don't think it's about more governments, but I think it's a, a, a point that was made around changing of roles and responsibilities potentially, getting comfortable with mm. being uncomfortable and not always being, this is the policy supply chain, go and action it, but bring us together up further earlier, let us provoke. I think we've got lots of forums at a local level that we can leverage, yeah. but it's actually, are we leveraging them well enough? Okay, I mean, okay Guy, you're howling with discontent. On, I, I, Come I, in, it's, so. definitely, it's definitely not the answer. Look at, it from the other end of the, <laughs> look at it from the other end of the telescope, right? I'm a boiler fitter, heating yeah. engineer at the moment, right? Yeah. I'm okay. busy. My phone is ringing uh, all the time uh, on fitting conventional Mm. boilers, you know, a million and a half Mm. uh, a year. Uh, I'm earning really good money. Um, uh, Why the hell should I change? And to be honest, uh, I've seen some of my mates, you know, they're starting to delve into this Mm. uh, renewable heating uh, thing. But I don't, but I'm probably 10 years off retirement. I can probably, Mm. you know, average age of uh, boiler fits is 55 in the UK. Uh, I can probably make it through to retirement, right? And, and crucially, I don't... Tr- right now, what's the sell to the consumer? The consumer is, well, I have this thing that you're unfamiliar with, um, uh, uh, and because of the way we do policy costs, is actually more expensive to run than the other thing, mm. and that's before you get mm. to the up, mm. upfront thing, right? So until you've got the policy framework in place that is incentivizing low carbon choices and you're not just relying on the kind of altruism of mm. people who will buy green stuff at a, at, a, at a premium, you will really struggle. It's only then you will get people really investing in uh, training people and supply chains and things like that. And you know, that's the test of how serious we are about uh, net zero is, is the starting point is have we got the incentives right? So doing the low carbon thing, mm. and that could be through regulation or subsidy mm. or pricing, but until you've got that, you know, it's just fingers crossed that people decide to wake up in the morning and go, yeah, I'm going to get this heat pump. I mean, you know. No so we've heard earlier about, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the price differential in gas and electricity. And that was something that in the original net zero strategy, the government did say it was going to issue a call for evidence about sort of switching the balance between gas and electricity prices, David. Uh, where are we on that? Can you update us on whether there's any progress? I mean, since then, obviously... You know, the uh, illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine helped shove up gas prices, but also shoved up electricity prices. So differentials narrowed, but not switched inordinately. So where are we? Has the government gone cold on daring to touch that? What the government said, and, and I, I know there's at least one person from Treasury here who might be able to update us, but um, uh, I, the, the government has committed that by spring next year, they'll have a solution for... The, the relative prices uh, being rebalanced between gas and electricity. That presumably means electricity getting cheaper. It may also mean gas getting more expensive, hopefully you know, with a lower wholesale price and then something on, mm. on, on top. Um, so we'll see. And then implementation from you know, the winter after next. That needs to happen. I mean, Guy's absolutely right. Mm. Even if there were queues of people wanting heat pumps in principle, mm. The, the economics just don't work for people. So that is an absolute prerequisite. But I, I think people in government do know that. I, I do think there is a commitment there to do it. But it's not, it's not easy. There will be winners and losers. If you make gas more expensive and electricity cheaper, people who have electric heating at the moment will be cheering from the rooftops. Mm-hmm. And people who use a lot of gas presumably will be out of pocket. And you know, 
the, the way these things work, the losers will shout louder okay. than the winners. Right. Those dates seem very comforting after the next election, which may make them possibly slightly easier for a brave government that's committed to net zero. Um, Treasury person, if you want to comment, do, but I sort of imagine you want to say these decisions are for the Chancellor mm. and wait for the budget. Um, <laughs> that's what I used to say when I was at the Treasury when I was asked a difficult question like that. Um, Tom, I'm going to take one more question from online and then I'm going to come to everybody in the room and next door if you want to pop your head around the door. Um, we've got quite a few questions coming in about both public engagement but also in the role of local government mm. in any of this. We haven't really talked about local government. Obviously, they're sort of implicitly mentioned in some of the things that Charlotte's been saying, some of the things Guy's, Guy's been saying. You know, do you actually think government at the moment has an idea on how to engage the public on this and how to use local government, some of the enthusiasm at local level and what might need to change to leverage both of those better for delivery? So on the public engagement point, I think there are lots of officials, including in, in Desnes, who are very interested in that and, and sort of keen to do more. I think historically, it's not something, not been something that central government is particularly good at. Um, doing, doing sort of public engagement as part of policy making. You see quite a lot of officials, sort of policy officials, seeing it as a bit of a, a burden and actually we can just sort of get the brains together in Whitehall and, and do it all ourselves. Um, I think you've seen a lot more public mm. engagement going on at the local level. Mm. Um, so off the back of the kind of climate assembly that happened mm. uh, centrally but was commissioned by the, the select committees, you've seen actually a lot of local authorities start to get people much mm. more involved in their plans. Um, so I think we need to see more of that from central government as sort of part of policy making. Um, we completely supported the view that net zero is not going to work on a sort of top-down basis. You need to have local authorities mm. um, and metro mayors um, playing a really important role. I think local authorities, uh, particularly the kind of smaller ones, are, are sort of struggling to do that at the moment. They've clearly been hollowed mm. out and they've already got quite a number of statutory duties which it's quite hard to meet. Uh, I agree with the point that Chris mm. made. I don't think you particularly need mm. another statutory duty on mm. top of the ones they've already got, which tend to kind of make these mm. sort of difficult for them in terms of how they use their mm. resources. Um, I think what, we, what, what local authorities mostly need is a bit more clarity about funding um, and a bit more clarity mm. about the role they can play. They, they've got very important levers mm. like planning, um, but I don't think they at the moment feel like they can play that role effectively. I think on Metro Mayors, mm. that's, that's a really interesting one. So we did a report um, earlier this year on the role of uh, Metro Mayors in, in delivering net zero. They are of a sort of scale mm. and their geography makes it possible mm. for them to do things on net zero that I think smaller local authorities find it quite difficult to do. So particularly if you look at sort of urban transport um, areas or on, on energy, I think they can do a lot. Um, I think you're starting to see that in Manchester and the West mm. Midlands and a little bit in the, the northeast. Um, again, in the current net zero strategies, there's no kind of mm. formal role mm. set out for metro mayors. There's not a way of involving them in policy making. So I think that's something that could be addressed as well. Guy, local authorities add to the confusion you're confused or are they critical parts? No, I think they're essential because you're talking about building... The next, you know, next We've made great progress on electricity. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about buildings. You're now talking about transport. These are local, right? The building, decarbonising the buildings of, uh, you know, Enfield, where I live, is very different from decarbonising the buildings of, uh, of Cornwall or Birmingham or Glasgow, where, wherever it is. Mm -hmm. And right now they, they kind of... They need to think about how that, and back to the whole system point, how all that system fits together. So uh, what is the role for local authorities joining up with... 
uh, network planning mm. and other questions and transport planning is really important. It's the area we've done a whole load of work with local authorities. We just completed 10 local area energy plans with Greater Manchester. And that means that Greater Manchester can move from these kind of heroic uh, targets, you know, we're going to do net zero by, you know, X to these are the priority projects. These are the ones that are low regrets in different uh, scenarios. Right, how can we get that funded? You can start thinking with the UK Infrastructure Bank about what might be the options there. But until you've got that credible plan, the local, the local politicians are going to be at the whim of what I call the kind of golf club conversations. It's like, oh God, how the hell are we going to do net zero? Oh, don't worry, I know somebody who's uh, got a you know, hydro project, etc. Is it the right thing to do for the system? No idea, but there's something green, so let's do it. You've got to get beyond that world to a world where we've got credible plans uh, to, to deliver on this. Uh, Charlotte, yeah. Point, a couple of points. So I agree with the planning point and like a coordination, you know, the local authorities need to be empowered to do what they want, but being coordinated with national and regional, I think is important because you get learning and join up. Mm. I think there are forums out there like Net Zero forums where mm. they work through things, but it doesn't necessarily always get fed back to other local authorities or fed back to central government and we're missing a trick there. Um, and then the third bit for me on engagement is around, let's not forget the citizen level. Like, are we seeing enough national engagement on this in a way that is relative to, yes, heat pumps are more expensive mm. for me, so why would I do it? Actually, how do we incentivize citizens to understand the why? I don't think we consistently talk enough about that. Okay, um, David, I'm just gonna pick up another question from here, but I'm gonna to come to you. Um, question from Anonymous, which I always assume is a civil servant, but maybe wrongly. Um, <laughs> or one of the IFG team thinking we don't have enough questions. But one of the things that your report uh, last week suggested was that the government was very cautious about demand reduction. Uh, I think you came out and criticised the original net zero strategy for its ducking behaviour change. You can still fly, you can still drive as much as you want, etc. Um, Anonymous has just asked, net zero requires big behaviour change, not least in food choices. We is obviously on the naughty stack for not producing any strategy much. Uh, huge cuts in meat and dairy consumption. How do you achieve that? How do we actually, do we need to confront people with sort of difficult choices or actually does that, and this is another question from online, does that risk provoking a backlash, the sort of stuff that Chris Gibbon was clearly sort of a bit nervous about, uh, that this is just sort of interfering in people's lifestyles? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and on food specifically, I think it's important to recognise as a government, first, we would like this direction mm. of travel, and I don't think we've had mm. that at all from the government. There's then a question about how do you achieve that? And if I was a politician, I think I would be pretty nervous about saying, yeah, let's just put a tax on red meat, because that seems like exactly the way to provoke a culture war uh, type response and actually make it divisive. But that's not the only way to get changes in people's mm. behavior. Obviously, there's a generational shift mm. going on at the moment, so we'll, we'll, we'll see increasing vegetarian veganism mm. uh, as young people move through the population. But I think giving people more choice, making it so that they understand the consequences of their choice, not just for net zero, but also for their own mm. health. You know, low carbon diets are also healthier mm. diets. And I think if we can join these things up and actually say, it's not about giving up meat entirely, mm. but if you halve the amount of meat you take in, you'll be healthier, you'll help contribute to net zero. Giving people the information and also the ability to make the choice is absolutely crucial. Okay, there's lots more to discuss on those, but let's go to the room and let's try. I'm gonna go for three questions. Uh, and if you're next door, please do duck your head round. Maddie, if we could go to the lady there, 
and then we'll do this side of the room first. Yes, just tell us who you are and quick questions so we get loads in. Hi, uh, I'm Alex from Flint Global. I was really interested in Charlotte's point about policy certainty not being the big issue that you're hearing about from investors, uh, mainly because it's not what I'm hearing from the investors I work with. And I think especially kind of post-IRA, you know, that kind of public subsidy links up policy certainty in the UK. We've got kind of a regulatory cycle every five years. Mm -hmm. So there is no certainty that your uh, investments are going to, mm -hmm. you know, return to the extent that you want. So surely, surely certainty needs yeah, to come okay. first. Yeah, yes. And then you could pass that along. Thank you. Hello, it's Rachel Solomon-Williams. Um, I am about to start as executive director at the Aldersgate Group. Um, I spent the last sort of 21 years working in energy and environment policy in different ways, including at probably all the departments mentioned on the panel so far. Um, I wanted to ask a question, because I think I agree with Guy that more architecture change probably doesn't fix fundamental underlying problems. Um, and one of the issues I've seen over time is business cases and how we value benefits. And I'd be really interested in the panel's view on that, because um, I think that uh, policy choices are often, and particularly actually when I was at DFT, I saw this happening, um, very strongly influenced by net present value and by what um, business cases would spit out and how we do um, impact assessments and that kind of thing. And I'm not sure that the current framework really lends itself to supporting decisions that um, drive towards net zero in the right way. And could we be doing that better? That's a fantastic IFG sort of question <laughs> that you would only get out of an IFG conference. Yes. John Coggan with the University of Nottingham. Um, we've had a really good conversation today around consumer choice and how to incentivize people to choose net zero technology. But a lot of the key technologies are not yet ready for the marketplace to achieve net zero. So what more do we need to do to incentivize and speed up the research happening in our universities and colleges to get them to industry such that they can turn into commercial solutions? Okay, let's, uh, let's take all of those. Um, Charlotte, challenged your view on yes. policy okay. certainty, and Chris Skidmore was also saying that was an area of comparative disadvantage compared to the US and Germany uh, in the UK. So I think I would start, I, I didn't say it, they weren't bothered about policy uncertainty. What I, yes, so I think where they come from is, yes, we need more, but if you look at where we are versus where we, are to, we were two and a half years ago, I think uh, government net zero targets two and a half years ago, um, we only had probably 10% of legislation and policy in place mm. to execute on those targets. Today we have 75%. So I think we come at it from the lens of there is enough to be moving forward and getting on with whilst we drive that uncertainty out. Otherwise we'd never get going and we can't, we know we need to go faster. So that's kind of the lens that we come at it from. Anyone else want to come in on policy uncertainty? David, um, Director of Analysis at the Climate Change Committee. Uh, Rachel's question about, you know, do we value things wrong? Is the green book or whatever we use to it, is it sort of too out of date for a net zero world? And I'm really quite interested that we're, we have systems that are quite good at sort of, you know, measuring incremental change, but they're not very good at coping with big sort of system leaps and discontinuities and stuff like that. So do we... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I've been around at the CCC for, for over 15 years, so we've been through a loop with a number of carbon budget mm. recommendations that we've made, where we think in giving our advice, we are 
adopting the right sort of attitude mm. to cost benefit and, and those sorts mm. of things, looking at the costs, uh, but also trying to quantify the benefits uh, and trading off and, and saying, well, don't do that thing because it's too expensive mm. or don't do that thing yet and, and, and those sorts of things. And yet when you see the impact assessment, I'm not going to pick out particular impact assessments, but some of them have been pretty high level and missed a lot of the, both the long-term consequences of near-term actions, uh, some of the wider benefits to health and, and those sorts of things. So I do think we need to do that better, but ultimately that's, that's just, you know, what does the department put in to that process and how do they frame it? You know, they might have one or two analysts working on an impact assessment and it's a very big job. And fundamentally, the CCC have already kind of done mm. what needs to be done. It, it, it just hasn't been done well enough. And I think then when you come to individual policies, again, that's repeated. So D Department for Transport, I think, is not great at looking at the benefits of demand reduction, for example, and the you know, improvements to, to air quality that we might get uh, and so on. So mm. yeah, I definitely think there are deficiencies there. Guy, do you think we undervalue co-benefits from action on climate? Uh, uh, I mean, probably. Um, the, I, I don't know, this is probably the ex-politico spad <laughs> in me. I'm, uh, I, I think business cases can be juiced either way, if you want to, <laughs> uh, from the points David was saying. You know, so they are absolutely a really important exercise mm. to go through and test, is this absolutely mad thing to mm. do? I, I think the more important point for a challenge like mm. Net Zero, which is an innovation mm. uh, challenge as well, is that the kind of processes that we have in place in government of business cases, call mm. for evidence, consultation, right? and we all, probably people in this room spend mm. their lives writing consultation responses, uh, which <laughs> somebody reads, you hope, uh, and you know, do they make a difference, right? Um, and it's an important part of the process. I think that is far removed from what we need for thinking about mm. net zero, which is a mm. much more, and this is kind of becomes a bit of a cliche, but I mean this in quite a technical sense, in the kind of agile policy framework, right? So you think about moving towards a flexible energy system. It's, it's kind of, right, we've got uh, a challenge, we've got a technology, how can we get enough confidence mm. to change mm. what I would call the kind of regulatory crud, mm. which is uh, all over the energy system? How can I chip away a bit of that? Because this technology wasn't envisaged when we wrote these license mm. conditions, and mm. this is a regulation challenge. So, you know, how do you do that quickly so you can move uh, more confidently uh, on it. And of course, you know, this kind of thing we learned in the pandemic, you can mm -hmm. move faster if you want to uh, move faster. Which links to the mm -hmm. final question, if, if, I, if I quote yeah, about yeah, consumer which I was choice. Going to push at you. Yeah, yeah, which we, which we at the Catapult thing is a mm -hmm. massive issue. So I've got a consume, brilliant consumer insight mm -hmm. uh, team. We've built that mm -hmm. because, again, the energy system doesn't think about, hasn't traditionally thought about consumers. We've got a 2,000 home real living lab. So if you've got a widget or a business idea, you can come and test very quickly, rapidly. I'd love to be able to do that with policy and regulation at the same time. And suddenly you've got a, a, a kind of virtuous circle going with policymakers and innovators going, oh, can I try this? And it's kind of sandbox plus. And that, you know, again, the pace we need to travel, how hard this is, that's what we need to, to move. Because the inertia in the system, uh, both literally and uh, kind of metaphorically, is, is, is massive. So that's why, you know, part of the reason we at the Catapult are building those kind of innovation loops that can make it work faster. Jill, just yeah. We did a, a piece of work 
here on uh, sort of net zero tests and the idea of kind of net mm. zero tests on, on policy making. Yeah. And it was interesting because it's one of the things that people in the kind of NGO mm. world, WWF mm. and, and others, have called for. And they have this idea that if you could mm. just create this kind of bureaucratic mm. test and force all policymakers to sort of jump through mm. it, um, then, then that would sort of solve the whole mm. problem. And we did this brilliant roundtable. We got a bunch mm. of officials together with the NGOs. And all the officials were like, nah, we'll just game it. <laughs> so we can, you know, we, we, can, we can totally work out how to sort of, you know, so, so I think that idea of designing policy mechanisms to kind of force particular behaviour mm. is quite difficult. I think there probably are improvements mm. you can make on cost-benefit, but a lot of it comes from the political I think you do, do need to check your processes don't get in the way. It's quite interesting that Kate Bingham's book about the vaccine task force is hugely critical of business cases and the lack of a sort of what she calls a science business case. I wasn't quite sure what she meant by a science business case, but the fact they're so static and sort of yeah. whatever. And I think it's really quite an interesting challenge when you're looking at these. Charlotte, question from, question linking to some of that yeah. about, you know, in terms of technology, uh, and we're going to talk this afternoon about supporting, uh, supporting green industries. But, you know, are these sort of free market incentives enough or does there need to be a sort of bigger, bigger role for government? Is it enough to say, well, actually, there's a great market out there. Go get it, guys. You know, this is our vision of the green economy. Or do we need to help accelerate in some of those sort of, you know, uncertain technologies? Well, I think it builds a little bit on what Guy said. So I think... You know, thinking about from an innovation lens, then how the government procure mm. that technology needs to change potentially. Like if you want SMEs, bigger organisations mm. also, to develop the ideas, come to mm. you to scale them, often our procurement channels we have today don't always work to um, engender that in the best way. So there is mm. some more help. I don't think it's enough just to say, go off and do. Um, I think to, to both the points we've heard across the panel, also then anchoring that in regions mm. and allowing regions to learn from each other. We've had the, the phrase banded mm. around trailblazers, mm. right? But how do we leverage different uh, mm. technologies in the regions mm. and then share that across? To do that requires join up and collaboration and there's a commerciality to that that some people mm. aren't always comfortable with, understandably. So how do we mm. um, foster that collaboration and inclusion mm. from, from the centre as well as the industries? Okay, really interesting. Really interesting. Let's go to some more questions here, and I've got some more questions online. So anyone in the next door room, do come in. We do want to hear from you as well. But go there, and then gentleman here didn't get his question in last time. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Alistair Ford, Newcastle University in the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. We've heard recently in the, on the panel a discussion about demand reduction, but do you think the balance is right between carrots and sticks? Um, I'm thinking the CCC report refers to things like low traffic neighborhoods as a, a good way of reducing transport demand, but there's this huge kind of culture war battle now going on around low traffic neighborhoods. So what, what needs to happen to embrace the fact that we need more sticks as well as the carrots to, to make change happen fast enough? Okay, and then we come to the gentleman here in the second. No, you need to wait for the microphone because otherwise people watching online can't hear you. Live, yeah. My question's got to, well, it's more of an answer, really, to some of the, the experiences we've met. Mm. I've developed a technology for making spray on heating elements, which is developed for an infrared system that's better than anything else there, about six times more powerful than anything else. The issue we've had in the past is Bayes put all its money into heat pumps, into technology. When we approached the BRE, they wanted nearly a million pounds to do some tests. We can't approach investors to turn around and say, well, it's going to cost you a million pounds even to do the tests. 
so you've so, been caught in so a bind. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, I know the base now is actually looking towards infrared as a backup to heat pumps. And I'd spoken to people like Alex Sharma, Quasi Quarteng, a couple of years back to advise them that heat pumps weren't necessarily the answer for everything. But I, this is some experiences in it. Really interesting. There'll be people you should definitely try and buttonhole over lunch. Let's go down the row. Andrew Large um, from the Confederation of Paper Industries. We're one of the UK's foundation industries making important products like uh, packaging and toilet paper mm. and, and so on. Um, if we look in the rear view mirror of decarbonisation, what we see is decline in UK territorial emissions, largely, sadly, driven by an offshoring of industry so that we're now much more of a net importer of Im embedded carbon uh, from, from other countries. Um, how would the panel advise government to make sure that the future doesn't mirror the past? Okay, um, I'm going to start off with that one because that is also the top voted question online, which is why isn't UK net zero defined on a com consumption rather than a current territorial basis? Okay. Nice. David, that's one for the I mean, apart from the fact that legislation gives you the target <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, actually, you know, is the quick way to decarbonise basically to deindustrialise, which is what we've done so far quite successfully? Um, no, and is that sustainable? Anyway. Nice, easy question. Okay, um, so I mean, the, the, the first point I'd make is, is very much that the Climate Change Act does give us a remit over territorial emissions. We do look at consumption-based emissions. We do look at mm. the balance between the emissions that mm. happen in the UK from UK consumption mm. and the emissions that happen elsewhere. And when we're building our pathways to net zero, etc., mm. we're very careful not to include things that will just move the emissions overseas. Uh, we actually want, you know, we have things in there that reduce not only UK emissions but actually also reduce emissions overseas. So that's really important. It's very difficult to have a legal target on consumption emissions because actually meeting a target depends on actions that happen overseas through which we had limited control. So that's why we have the legal target on the stuff that happens in the UK because we have more control and, and over that. how important do you think having a uh, common border adjustment mechanism would be for preventing us effectively just offshoring emissions? I think that could be very helpful. I think we need to be able to price carbon in a way in the UK that gets the changes in the UK that we need without risking the competitiveness of UK industry, which would be bad not only for global emissions, but also for UK PLC. So we clearly shouldn't be offshoring. I do recognise that some of that's happened. Not all of that's due to carbon mm. policy. Some of that's just mm. you know, changes in, in the UK economic structure. But yes, we absolutely shouldn't be aiming to offshore those emissions, and we should be putting in place mm. rules that allow some pretty full yeah. throttle UK uh, climate policy, but without the risks yeah. of, of the carbon leakage. And, and a carbon border adjustment mechanism is certainly one way to do that. So in a net zero world, it shouldn't matter. If the whole world's at net zero, then... Sure. I, in, in steady state in 2060, then it doesn't matter. But the, the transition from here to there is going to be really important. And different countries will be moving at different speeds. We need yeah. to not make it worse. Uh, through our efforts to decarbonise. Guy, could I bring you in on this second sort of yeah. technology bind? You know, you've got something a bit innovative that doesn't fit and then you find yourself being posted between different bits of government and you basically, you know, they've gone one way. And I'm really interested, uh, linking to the point from the uh, colleague from the University of Nottingham earlier about, you know, 
making these sort of difficult technology choices in government? You know, when do you sort of back a technology with the risk that you've, you know, locked yourself into, I don't know what was Chris Skidmore's sort of, you know, you're still watching Terrestrial when you could be watching Netflix. I think that's me. Or you've got your <laughs> Betamax video recorder and stuff like that. You know, you discover you've made the wrong technology bet. How does government do that, give some certainty, but not exclude superior technologies that might actually emerge from all this money being thrown at it, you know, in the US yeah. and in China and in uh, Europe? So I, my starting point is government should be... Uh, pretty humble about its ability to predict what technology uh, development is is going to be. So it should be trying wherever possible as a starting mm. point, starting framework mm. to get your market incentives in place mm. where actually the mm. better cho combination or choice mm. of technology is revealed through through market processes, right? That should be your your kind of your kind of starting point. There's a particular point on the testing mm. regime. Yeah. That's back to the point I was trying to make mm. earlier, which is how do you do rapid mm. testing without it costing a million mm. quid just to get to the starting gate so you can access subsidies, yeah. uh, etc. But government is going to have to make some technology mm. choices. It's going to have to make some uh, bets, put some incentives in place. It should have quite careful criteria mm. about how it does that. Has the UK got a comparative mm. advantage? Is the global market very likely to be so significant? significant, probably still get that stuff wrong. On the demand reduction point, which I've heard of a few times, mm. I, I, think, I think if we, uh, I tend to be skeptical of mm. framing arguments, mm. um, but if we keep calling it demand reduction, then people are gonna be like, no thanks. Because uh, uh, you know that's that's a that's a tough sell to people. You've got to sell it as better. Now I happen to think that low traffic neighbourhoods are better than elsewhere. I if I said that on my uh, uh, Enfield Road WhatsApp group, I would probably have my house burnt down, right? <laughs> so there is, a, there is a difference of uh, opinion. Yeah. You know, some people quite happy with mm. their children getting uh, run over at every opportunity. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm less in favor of that, exactly. But, so, but you've got to, this comes down to mm. all of this stuff mm. around net zero. You have to tell the story mm. that what we're moving to mm. is better, yeah. right? Electric vehicles are, are better than uh, internal combustion engines, right? They will be cheaper soon, they're already better drive, um, cheaper to run, whether that can be sustained mm. or not, et cetera. That's what we should be aiming for, heating systems which are better. Uh, and so, so therefore, um, public transport options, et cetera, mm. it's, gotta be, it's gotta be better. And that's, that's the important. That's really hard, mm. and that's about innovation. I have to say, I've always failed to understand why air quality isn't a more potent political issue and why actually it took you know European targets to get people to say actually it's not a great idea to poison your citizens but anyway moving swiftly on it's probably why I'm not in politics um Charlotte I'm interested in your take on this sort of you know have we got the balance between incentives and sticks right and I mean one answer obviously to guys you know fitter is just to tell them well you know tough mate you know you're not going to be able to fit a gas boiler after 20 you know, 30, so wake up and get retrained or take your pension freedom and go and do something else. So, you know, have we got that balance right at the moment between sticks and carrots? And the point is balance, right? So to the gentleman's mm. point on, on demand reduction, I think about its circularity con concept, right? So how do we optimise what we've got rather than producing more? And there's examples we take in transport. You could re significantly reduce emissions through a circularity lens, but it requires... Mm 
high quality public mm. transport. It requires mm. innovative business models, mobility as a service, and really a shift in, you know, from everybody owning a single car to actually mandating ride sharing. Like there needs to be a blend mm -hmm. of carrot and stick. Um, I think there are some sticks that people are nervous of, mm. topics like road user charging mm. uh, or taxation on, on EVs, etc., because of how it's going mm. to be um, received. And I think actually, Jill, it was a conversation you and I had pre today mm. on. Mm. You know, outside of different uh, electoral changes mm. in the government, how do we really incentivise this long-termism? Mm. It's that frame for me, and to the point we made about mm. engagement, people understanding why the carrots and the sticks and what's the ultimate benefit of the stick. Whereas at the moment, I think, and we've heard a little bit from Guy, we just see the stick and we don't necessarily understand the long-term gain. So I think it's showing both sides of the coin and painting the long-term picture. Okay, Tom, I'm gonna ask you a different question which I'm picking up from online. Lots of talk about scaling up heat pumps, but Anonymous has pointed out that they won't save carbon or cash without a well-insulated home. Uh, I think some of us, including the Climate Change Committee, were a bit... Well, <laughs> we've got... The, OK, you can come on why it's wrong. But insulation, the lack of government sort of, you know, focus on energy efficiency was quite interesting differentiator of the UK's response to the big rise in energy prices compared to other governments in Europe. So what actually, do we need to act on energy efficiency? Uh, you can come and make the case for heat pumps not freezing your house. Uh, where do we need to go on that? Well, I think we probably need to do both. I think the, yeah. the, the thinking has evolved a bit from the point maybe sort of a few years ago yeah. where people were saying your heat pump's not going to be very effective. Okay, if, anonymous. If you yeah. haven't got a very insulated home. Anonymous but get actually, a better heat pump. When you yeah. take David's point about where the sort of heat pump installation yeah. sector is in this country yeah. and how much we're able to do, and how challenging it's going to be to kind of scale that up. We do need to be insulating people's homes mm. as well. Um, I think it was interesting actually just to bring it around to the yeah. demand yeah. question as well, that in our response to the sort of massive surge in energy bills, we just found it very difficult to talk about anything that would reduce energy demand. So mm. you know, it took ages for us to even sort of start talking about people adjusting their boiler settings or, or doing these things. And actually we did a, a podcast with a, a bunch of sort of European mm. experts and they've been doing this stuff from sort of moment one, you know, and actually we were spending huge amounts of money, we're taking a lot of it mm. on the public balance sheet. So the fact that we weren't sort of politicians weren't willing mm. to sort of have that conversation was I think a, a problem. Um, on energy efficiency, I think you've again got this kind of similar to the, the heat pump issue, you've got quite a kind of low trust sector where they've been mm. burned uh, sort of multiple times. If you go back to the 2012 Green Deal, more recently the Green Homes mm. Grant, yeah. and kind of led up the hill and then sort of really let down when they've kind of put sort of time and effort into sort of getting ready to deliver some of this stuff. And they've been constantly given these quite kind of short term uh, sort of pots of money. And that hasn't really delivered the kind of change in the workforce that you'd, you'd want to see there. Um, Guy, we're going to hear from uh, Ed Miliband after lunch and one of the big sort of labour differentiating proposals is Great British mm -hmm. Energy. I suppose Great British Retrofit, Great British Railways or whatever. Um, bad luck if you're in Northern Ireland but I suppose they have the single electricity market so that's okay on this. Um, <laughs> you know, Pansy McLean's asked whether this really is a sort of task that actually is Great British Energy the answer to your coordination problems? Is that how you see it? Is that how you think Labour sees it? What uh, do you think Great British Energy might and should do? So I, I don't, it's, it's not how I see it. Uh, mm. I, I don't think it's how uh, Labour 
uh, see it as well, but I'm sure <laughs> Middleband's a better place than I am to, uh, to uh, articulate that. I think, it's, I think it's really important, back to that kind of roles and responsibilities yeah. here. What is the missing bit of, uh, of uh, what needs to happen yeah. in, the, uh, in the kind of mm. uh, architecture of, of how we deliver this? And there definitely needs to be a cleaning up of what's the government's responsibility, yeah. what's the FSO's responsibility, uh, etc. FSO is the... Oh, sorry, the future system operator is what the, uh, the mm. electricity system operator, National Grid's electricity system operator will become. Okay. And Labour see that as a much bigger role. They use the phrase system architect, which we at the Energy Systems Catapult love, um, <laughs> uh, because they are trying to see how all these things uh, fit together. So and I think that's a really important role. Operators are more passive, So uh, at the moment, architect. operator basically has job to keep the lights on, so balance electricity in real time, so electricity yeah. focus. Yeah. Future system operators are going to be much broader in that. It's going to have a planning role, likely have a planning yeah. role. The bill's going through mm. at the moment and roles will yeah. be uh, assigned. It will be a much more important institution. And what does an architect do on top of that? So an architect thinks about how the market design, how the uh, planning fits together, okay. how the regulation fits together, um, and should have that, that, that coordination mm. challenge, which is the thing that's missing uh, from the debate at the moment. Yeah. I haven't answered your what Great British no, Energy I'm is going to do. Yeah. Great British Energy. Um, so, you, so uh, my, my advice would be, for what it's for what it's mm. worth, uh, is thinking about what are the real barriers where you're uh, where you've got particular uh, set of investments mm. that are not happening at the scale you need, um, mm. and to de-risk uh, some of those. So, for me, it it might be more akin to a kind of. Uh, green Investment Bank, remember that, mm. um, uh, than, than, than something else. But I think Labour have got yeah. different views on, on how that should or work. can pepper, pepper Ed with questions. Let's do one very quick further round here. Yes, so we've got two ladies in this row. So let's, and gentlemen at the back. Yes. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, hi there. I'm Judith Ward from Sustainability First. Can I just come back to the cost side? Um, I mean, what more needs to be done to understand and also to inform generally in a far more granular way what the cost picture of net zero looks like and especially to address the winners and the losers and the distributional impacts and therefore the kind of mitigations that may be needed to ensure that if you like the losers single quotes are not going to be an eternal break on getting to the target. Really interesting question. Let's move, if you could move the microphone along the line. Lady, yeah. Um, hello there. My name is Mandy Maripise and I'm from DEFRA. And I was just interested to ask the panel on their thoughts on more innovative ways of citizen engagement, but also on science and technology communication, because there's a lot of noise, a lot of content being created for consumers, for businesses, for policymakers. How do we cut through the noise and give people a fairer picture of where we're actually at and what individuals can do, what governments can do, and what businesses can do um, towards working effectively at net zero, towards okay. net zero? That's a great question. There are a lot of comments online about that as well. So thanks very much for asking that. And then right at the back. Thank you. Ashur Nissan from Kaya Partners. I have a question which connects a little bit about the investments and the power reform comments or power comments. Is, does the model, for example, of the Triple C involve a power market reform in the UK? We've, we have heard at our firm that there is already reluctant renewables because of the structure of the power market. 
so people are not convinced that they can return their money as a result of the way it is priced, which is an example, I think, of the things that were discussed earlier about private yeah. sector not having the clarity. So is this essential and also is it likely? Okay, uh, let's take that one first. Um, David, CCC view. A CCC view on electricity market reform. No, nice, easy question again. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I mean, we have actually a very successful system historically over the last 10 years of getting investment into renewable electricity capacity and bringing down the costs particularly of offshore wind, um, and that's through an auction-based system. And ultimately, if people are making bids in an auction that don't give them the required rate of return, then that doesn't seem like a very sensible strategy. I think what we might see from what's happened recently over the last couple of years in terms of supply chain inflation and those mm. sorts of things is that the sorts of prices we saw coming out of the auctions uh, a year or two ago, you know, they might stop going down, they might start going up again because of the so supply chain inflation. So I th hopefully that's self-correcting to some extent. But the renewable capacity is only part of what we need for, for the low carbon system. We also need you know, the hydrogen power plants and the hydrogen storage and the different forms of energy storage. We need the interconnectors and the, the demand side uh, response and not all bits of that system have a framework that allow the investment that we need. So. So that's going to be important. I also want to talk about the distributional one, but I'm happy for, I'm for us going to... to I'm just, Guy, do you just want to come in on... The yes, the question was, so it's absolutely necessary, reform of uh, the power market, so it reflects the physics of the new system, of much more renewable, heavy system, a much more decentralised system. If we don't align the physics, then we could get into... And, and you know, you're piling on electric vehicles and all these mm. other challenges. If we don't get the physics aligned with the market design, we're going to have real problems on the, on the grid. The grid's already starting to uh, creak, and I think that is a big challenge. Is it likely? It's probably the most important day one, week one decision for whoever is the new government. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think you can do anything this, that big before the new, uh, new parliament. I'd be delighted if they, if they did, but it's, it's got to be ready, because that is difficult tough stuff to, uh, to, to, to think through. And how do you do that without upsetting uh, uh, kind of investors who are used to a very nice uh, fixed, um, uh, fixed price uh, contract for, and, for a period of time? And would you guess that the opening slide pack for the new Secretary of State for whatever the department gets to be called after an election will have that as Secretary of State, welcome. Your first decision is that. Do you think that that's where officials in the department are in pushing that forward? I hope so, because the, the electricity system, you know, the, the energy system is going to be much more electrified. It's going to be renewables as the backbone with wind as the backbone of it. We've got a huge opportunity around uh, flexibility and digitalization where the UK is a real leader in this space. Mm. We've got to get markets mm. so there's a real uh, join up there. Um, if it's not in day yeah. one, I'll be really interested in to know what, uh, what what's, is. what's more important. <laughs> if, assuming you haven't got a kind of Ukraine-style uh, gas crisis that we had uh, over the last... Okay. Uh, so, David, you were very keen to take up the really interesting from Judith about uh, distribution analysis, yeah. which, of course, we expected to see in the Treasury Net Zero review and seemed to get left on the bus. But anyway... <laughs> No, no comment on that bit, but um, I, I mean, look, I think it's, it, it's really important. We, we do a lot of analysis about the overall cost of net zero and quite granular in terms of the technologies and the, the overall cost, but there are choices about where those costs and where those benefits fall within society. You're not going to get net zero unless the people who need to make the choices 
are better off through making those the, the, the green choices rather than the, the, the not green choice. You just, you know, this has to be a whole of society endeavor and people are not going to choose on a consistent basis across the whole of society to make themselves worse off. So you need a fundamental principle of we're going to be, you know, people are going to be better off through choosing the green thing, but there are other choices to make about exactly what the mechanisms are that deliver these things. Buildings decarbonisation is going to be expensive mm. unless we have extremely high gas prices, mm. which uh, you know, we've seen recently, but I don't think will be sustained uh, through, through the period to, to 2050. Whereas actually transport and the transition to electric vehicles creates an opportunity. We, we think it's going to be cost-saving for the country. So there's a question of, well, where do those benefits mm. go? Is that to drivers? Mm. Is that to the exchequer? Uh, there are choices to be made there. We are doing some modelling. We've, we've, we commissioned a model last year from Frontier Economics to look at the distributional implications of these kind of choices. We haven't yet put anything out, but that we're hoping to put something out in the autumn on these sorts of things. It's going to be a big, big issue. Okay, I wanted to come up and finally come to the question there on communication uh, about science technology, but about sort of costs and benefits and get the view from all the panel on actually what could the government be, be doing better and also pick up one or two of the questions coming in online about the election and what difference that might make and how we might see you know, elections and good communication about honest policy choices not necessarily usually mentioned together in the same sentence. So is the election source of risk there, uh, whatever. Um, Tom, yeah. What should we be doing better? What should we be doing better about communication generally? So I think one of, our, one of our points after the sort of first net zero strategy mm. 2021 was we hadn't really at that point had a, a kind of proper communication strategy for net zero. Um, that kind of Boris Johnson iteration mm. was very much sort of sunlit uplands, sort of techno-optimist. Um, you know, we can all be better off and, and it's fantastic. And I think we do need to get that message across, as David's been saying, that, you know, there are a lot of benefits mm. to this transition. But I think a bit of a dose of realism from politicians about actually the sort of difficult things that are ahead as well um, is, is needed too. Um, and I think thinking about all of the different um, sort of ways in which you can communicate mm. with the public about that is going to be really important. Charlotte, I'm very interested, you know, you lead on sustainability and climate change for Deloitte. When you're talking to maybe slightly sceptical board members, I mean, you know, yeah. can you convey a vision that maybe is a slightly more compelling one the government's come up with? I don't know if I'd take that one on. Um, <laughs> I think when, you know, when we talk to clients, because I think part yeah. of your question was around innovation, mm. and we position this topic as actually, you know, how are you going to attract the talent of tomorrow? Mm. You know, the generation coming through really prioritise this topic. So when we talk to clients, mm. it's about actually how do you mm. put this at the heart of your business? Because those that are wanting to come in the mm. employment market will vote with with their feet in this topic. So how do you leverage that to them? I think your other point on innovation was around, you know, how do we capitalize on the regional lens more? I'm seeing quite a lot when I'm talking to clients around local initiatives, grants to support investment in new ideas, to prove it and then to scale it. So it came mm. to Guy's point earlier about mm. using agile to get rid of the policy crud. Um, and I think it anchors back, I had a really good conversation with a client the other day who have this in their top five priorities, mm. but it wasn't their number one. Their number one was to be an employer of choice in the top 25 employers in the UK. So we had a big debate on actually, by making your business mm. sustainable, how can you leapfrog your competition and be that employer of choice? Vision communication, Guy? So first thing I say is that 
um, you know, you work in a pretty healthy background in terms of public support for, mm. uh, for environmental issues and net zero. I mean, in fact, actually pretty extraordinary. You know, some people were talking earlier about how high it still, it still ranks, and you see that mm. in focus groups, and you see that across the income uh, uh, support, uh, et cetera. So it's a good background. Government probably should be um, kind of reinforcing the importance mm. of this. Why, you know, telling the big story, mm. the big vision story, which I, I think it's it's uh, which is not told that well over the last uh, few years. But again, like, what's the role of government versus what's mm. the role of the private sector? You know, when you're getting into people making, you know, the government is not going to be better at selling electric vehicles than the mm -hmm. car industry, right? It's great at selling stuff. Um, uh, so, so again, but it's only going to do that if it thinks it's you know big enough market, which comes back to policy choices. So, yes, a bit of you know general kind of uh, communication mm. and the importance of uh, uh, this, you know, the importance of this mm. transition. But focus on getting the policy frameworks right, and then the private sector will come in and, and work out how to sell the stuff. Final word, David. I don't think enough of the public actually understand what net zero means for them. What are the big choices mm. that they need to make? What are the things that they can do that make a difference? You look at survey results and people will put recycling mm. pretty near the top of the list in terms of what they can do for net zero. And of course you should recycle, but it's not towards the top of the list. You know, and, and coming back to some of the things about energy efficiency versus heat pumps. Well, we need both, but if we had to choose, we'd probably choose a heat pump because you need to completely decarbonise your heating and not just maybe knock 20% off your, off your bill. People don't really understand what those okay. are, and I think that's absolutely essential. The government can also tell a pretty positive story about some of the things it has done over the last 10 or 15 years and say, we're going to build on this, and now we're going to extend the very largely decarbonised electricity that we've, uh, that, that, that we've developed to heating and the transport. So it can tell the big, big vision story. It just hasn't done it yet, and it's quite frustrating. Okay, that's a great point to end, a positive note to end. So I'm going to thank everybody for watching online and tell them you can tell your friends and tell them to watch this when it's put up on our uh, website or our YouTube channel uh, very shortly. Uh, do tune back at 1.15. Could I ask everybody in the room to thank our fantastic panel?